you would now take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joshua. So we've been overviewing each book of the Bible. We'll continue, Lord willing, to do so um, until we've made our way to the end of the Bible. And uh, tonight we come to the book of Joshua. Joshua picks right up where the book of Deuteronomy left off. In fact, in the last chapter of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 34, Moses dies. And Joshua 1 begins with a somewhat terse announcement from God to Joshua, Moses is dead. In other words, it's your turn to lead, big guy. And so Joshua, who has been an apprentice to the protege of Moses now for years, is about to be the man who is in charge. We are introduced to Joshua, the person, back in uh, the book of Exodus in chapter 17, where the Bible records that he led Israel's army to victory over the Amalekites, so he's a man with some experience in battle. He'll need that experience in battle in that Joshua is a book about battle. God had brought the people of Israel out of their bondage. If you're with us on Sunday morning, we're walking through the book of Exodus. The people of Israel were for 430 years enslaved in Egypt. God brings them out under the leadership of Moses. They get near the promised land, the land that God had promised them would be theirs, and they send out 12 spies to look at the land to help them develop a strategy for conquering the people of the land. When they come back, 10 of the 12 bring a bad report. They say the land is everything that God said it was. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. They, they brought a cluster of grapes that was so large that they carried it on a pole between the shoulders of two men to bring back as evidence of the fruitfulness of the land. But ten men said, we simply cannot defeat the people of the land. We must have looked like grasshoppers to them. They were so large. In fact, they said the descendants of the Anakim, the giants, they live there. These people are too many for us to defeat, and they are too large for us to defeat. It's simply more than we can take on. But there were two men among the spies who insisted that they could win the victory in the promised land. Joshua and Caleb. Both Joshua and Caleb, but Caleb most vocally said, let's go get the land that God has promised us we could have. But as a result of those ten men and their pessimism, their lack of faith, God said to that generation, Moses, you and the generation, everybody except for Joshua and Caleb are going to die in the wilderness. You will see it with your eyes from across the Jordan on the plains of Moab, but you will never enter into the land that was promised for you for your unbelief. In fact, the book of Hebrews says it was their unbelief that kept them back from the promised land. The same thing stands to keep you back from the promised land, unbelief. But Joshua and Caleb were granted a reprieve from the judgment of that generation. God allowed that both Caleb and Joshua, for their faith in him, would live and, in fact, would lead the next generation in entering into the promised land in conquering the territory that God had allotted for them. We won't say much about Caleb tonight, but as an old man, as the land is being distributed late in the book of Joshua, Caleb is still insisting that he be given opportunity to defeat strongholds that remain within the promised land. There's a, there's a mountainous area that Manasseh is complaining about 
not being able to overtake for obvious reasons. It's mountainous. There's a lush forest there. It would be difficult to travel, difficult to navigate, and there were many people there who had sought shelter, it seems, in the mountains. Caleb says, give me the mountain. I'll take the mountain. Give me the occasion to go and to do what God has determined would be done, that we'd have victory when we enter into the promised land. Joshua, who had previously experienced victory over the Amalekites, who had been the sidekick to Moses when he received the law in Exodus chapter 34, who was always near the tent of Moses, specifically in Exodus chapter 33, would now be the leader of this people. God says to Joshua, again in chapter 1, Moses is dead, and now is your opportunity to lead. And repeatedly, God says to Joshua there, be of good courage. In other words, do not be afraid. In the same way I was with Moses, I'll be with you. Now, there are tremendous connections between the book of Joshua and the New Testament. We'll mention some of those along the way. But it might be helpful to note, perhaps even insightful, that Jesus is just the Greek name for the Hebrew name Joshua. If, if we were reading the New Testament in Hebrew, there would be no way to distinguish between the name of our Savior and the name of Joshua, who leads the people of Israel into the promised land. Your Hebrew listener, your, your Hebrew hearer of the gospel, would understand full well the implications of that overlap, those two names uh, not only sounding the same, but even appearing the same on paper. In the same way that Joshua was to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, so Jesus leads his people, a new Israel, into the promised land, only this time it's not an earthly territory that's been assigned to us, but a land that quite literally flows with milk and honey in the presence of our king. The book of Joshua outlines really neatly. You have a three-point outline in the handout that you received. In chapters 1 through 12, Israel conquers the land. In chapters 13 through 21, Israel divides the land. And then in the last three chapters of the book, Israel begins to settle into the land. You could really even reduce that to two parts. I, I find it helpful to me in reading the Bible to, to be able to process outlines for books. Some of you are not wired that way. But there's a two-part outline for the book of Joshua that's really easy to remember. They conquer the land in the first 12 chapters. They, they uh, divide and settle the land in the last 12 chapters. It really is that uh, cut and dry when it comes to the book of Joshua. So I've identified four key events, four key passages in the book of Joshua that I want us to look at in the time that we have together here tonight that I think sort of encapsulate the message of the book of Joshua, which in so many ways is victory, conquest, entering into the promised land. The first of those key passages is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. If you would turn there, we'll look at this passage together. Here, we're introduced to a Canaanite harlot by the name of Rahab. In verse 1, the Bible says, Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from Acacia Grove. And he said to them, Go and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left and came to the house of a woman, a prostitute named Rahab, and stayed there. Now, if you've been following with our study and you're familiar with the flow of Old Testament narrative, you know that this, this is not the first time spies have been sent out. It happened once before. 
here, here again, the spies are being sent to sort of check out what's going on in the land, to help us to put together a plan. The last time this happened, there was not the best report, and for that reason, a generation died wandering in the wilderness. But here we have a response of faith on the part of the spies that are sent out by Joshua. In verse 2, the Bible says the king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. The king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. But the woman had taken two men and taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, Yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. But she'd taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. The men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan. As soon as they left to pursue them, the gate was shut. And verse 8 says, Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, that the territory, the terror rather, of you has fallen on us, and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is in heaven above and on earth below. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you'll show kindness to my family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you'll spare the lives of my father, mother, brother, sisters, and all who belong to them and save us from death. Now let's pause there and think about what we just read. These spies come to the city of Jericho, a well-fortified city. Jericho is, is not only an important city because it is the first city that the Israelites conquer, it's an important city because it is a well-fortified city that the Israelites conquer. And they wind up in the company of a prostitute named Rahab. And Rahab tells the Israelite spies what they probably were unaware of, that we have spies too, and we've heard about you. And we know what God did when he dried up the Red Sea, when he brought you out of Egypt. And we know about God's faithfulness to you in the wilderness. And we know about how you completely destroyed the Amorite kings to the east of the Jordan. There are two battles that are a big battle that happens before they get to the promised land just prior to entering over, crossing the Jordan River. They engage in battle with Sihon and Og, these two great Amorite kings. And they completely destroy those Amorite kings and the territories that once belonged to them. If you look at your Bible map in the back of your Bible, where the territories of the 12 tribes of Israel are identified, you'll note that there are two tribes that have land allotments that are east of the Jordan River. They have those because of the victory that Israel wins over Sihon and Og, even before they enter into what is the promised land proper. They said, we heard about that. We know about God's faithfulness to you and the victory that you won on the other side. And then she confesses. Here's what she says, and it may seem insignificant, but it's, it's, it's a really important look at the faith of Rahab. She says, we know that your God, I know that your God, Yahweh, is God in heaven and on earth. Now, this flies in the face of Canaanite religion. If you're with us on Sunday mornings, we talked last Sunday about how every part of creation was assigned a certain deity or a certain god in the Egyptian mind. There's still parts of the world that operate with a similar religious system. A tree has a spirit. 
the earth has a, a spirit or a God. The moon has a God or a spirit. But here the confession of Rahab is that your God is God both in heaven and on earth. There is no territory. There is no thing that is beyond his authority. He is God in heaven and on earth. This is a radical turn from what, have, what would have been her religious understanding until this time. She is uh, fearful of the power of this God as the Israelite people approach. She asks that they'll save her, that she would be delivered because of the kindness that she showed the two Hebrew spies in rescuing them from the hands of the uh, leaders of Jericho. Now in verse 14, the men answered her, we will give our lives for you. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. She let them down by a rope through the window since she lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. Go to, go to the hill country so that the men pursuing you won't find you, she said to them. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return. Afterward, go on your way. And the men said, we'll be free from this oath you made us swear unless when we enter the land you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brothers, and all dead, and we will be innocent. But if anyone with you in the house should be harmed, his blood be on our heads. And if you report our mission, we are free from the oath you made us swear. She said in verse 21, let it be as you say. And she sent them away. And after they'd gone, she tied the scarlet cord to the window. Now let's unpack that for just a moment. Here's a, here's a little bit of a preview of Sunday morning's message when we look at Exodus chapter 12. In the Passover event, when God sent the death angel or the destroyer to the land of Egypt, he said, here's how the destroyer is going to know the homes of the Israelite people. You're going to take a lamb and you're going to sacrifice the land, the lamb, and you're going to take the blood of that lamb and you're going to paint it on the doorpost and above the door, the lintel of, of the house. And when the death angel comes and he sees the blood, he will pass over the house. So the remembrance of that event is known as the Passover. You're familiar with that terminology. When the destroyer comes, the, the scarlet paint, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your house will mark you safe from the death penalty being brought by the death angel. The warning is given in Exodus 12. If you'll look for this Sunday morning, you'll see it in the exact same terms that it's given here in Joshua chapter 2. You must not leave your house. Stay inside the house. See, the deal is the destroyer came for the land of Egypt. The destroyer is no respecter of persons. The only thing that's going to save you from the destroyer when he comes is your having taken shelter behind the blood of the Lamb. From this side of the cross, given the declaration that the New Testament makes about Jesus, that he is the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world, it's easy for us to connect the dots here. Perhaps not so much for Rahab, but in due time, she would understand too. If not in her earthly life, then when she would see the true Joshua face to face. The scarlet thread that hangs from the window of her home marks her safe from the death army that God sends to the city of, of Jericho. It's safe here figurative, figuratively behind the scarlet cord. 
but safe eternally behind the scarlet blood of the Lamb of God who, who came to take away the sin of the world. Rahab experiences her own personal Passover because of her faith in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, she would seem something of an insignificant figure in the history of the Bible, except that she's mentioned many, many times, or many times, in the New Testament. In Hebrews 11.31, it's noted that Rahab acts by faith when she sees to the safekeeping of those Hebrew spies. In James 2 and 25, the Bible says that Rahab was justified by a faith in God that called her to action when she hid the Hebrew spies in the stalks of flax on the roof of her home. The New Testament literally interprets this passage for us. The connections that exist between the symbolism of the scarlet cord and the scarlet blood of Jesus are real, verified, validated for us in the teaching of the New Testament. She acts in faith. She is justified by her faith. That is, she is declared righteous by God for her faith and having acted on that faith. And, and here's an astounding thing. In Matthew 1.5, the Bible tells us that Rahab stands in the ancestral lineage of Jesus Christ. That, that, she, that she is a great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother in the ancestry of, of Jesus Christ. Here, by faith, God elevates a woman of ill repute. He takes a prostitute living in the wall of a cursed city and through her line brings the Savior into the world. It really is an incredible thing. Rahab is central to the message of Joshua. That, that in spite of the fact that the people of God are entering into this promised land, which means judgment for so many of the people who are in the land, that the game plan of God, the missional purpose of God, established in the very formation of Israel as a nation, his people as his own in Genesis 12, I will use you to be a blessing to the nations, has not changed. Here in Joshua, and this is where you reconcile all that's happening, if there's anything that moderns struggle with in the book of Joshua, it is the fact that God sends his army in, and, and, and the command is, when you go into a city, you annihilate the city. You kill everything that moves in the city. And modern mind struggles with that. How does that accord with a good and perfect God? Here, it, it operates differently later, but here, Israel is God's sword of judgment. In Genesis fifteen seventeen, there is a call for the judgment of the Amalekite people, for instance, or the Amorite people, rather. And God says, they have not yet filled up the measure of their sin. My patience with their sinfulness has not yet run out. Now, the interesting thing about the way we regard what happens in Joshua is that we never ask the same questions when the Israelites are on the receiving end of God's sword of judgment. No one ever asked, what about the Babylonian army coming into the land of Israel and completely annihilating or destroying 
the people, because we have insight into history, the, the progress of God's patience with the Israelite people, wearing thin. They fill up the full measure of their sin, and God sends the Babylonians as the sword of judgment. Here, the Israelites are the sword of judgment against those who dwell in the land. Rahab is a model of God's continued faithfulness, even to the nations, in his raising up the nation of Israel as his own special people. Here's the second episode. The next two come closely together. Look over to uh, Joshua chapter 6. We'll have to move a little quicker than that in the next couple. If there's anything that people know about the book of Joshua, it is the defeat of the city of Jericho. You learn songs in vacation Bible school or Sunday school. I didn't go to vacation Bible school as a kid or Sunday school, so I really don't know the song, but I know the song exists. And you know what happens in the song. For six days, they march around the city of Jericho. And on the seventh day, they march around the city of Jericho seven times. And at once, they all shout, and they blow the trumpets. And when they do, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. I should remember that from my own children's childhood, but the song escapes me now, and you should be glad that I don't make any effort at singing it for you. That's what happens. Amen to that. That's exactly right. That's what happens in Joshua chapter number 6. That they go in and they win victory. Just a few verses from Joshua 6. Look at verse 1. Now Jericho was strongly fortified because of the Israelites. No one entering or leaving. For circling the city one time. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven ram's horns, ram horn trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day march around the city seven times while the priests blow the trumpet. When there's a prolonged blast of the horn, you hear it sound, have all the people give a mighty shout. The city wall will collapse. The people will advance, each man straight ahead. So Joshua gives the command in verse 6 as to how they're to follow after this order from God. And verse 15 begins that early on the seventh day, they started at dawn and marched around the city seven times in the same way. That was the only day they marched around the city seven times. And after the seventh time, the priests blew the trumpets. And Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. But the city and everything in it are set apart to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and everyone with her in the house will live because she hid the men we sent. But keep yourselves from the things set apart or you'll be set apart for destruction. If you take any of those things, you'll be set apart from the camp of Israel for destruction and bring disaster on it. For all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. So the people shouted, And the trumpet sounded. When they heard the blast of the trumpet, the people gave a great shout, and the wall collapsed. Now, this must have looked like a silly thing to the people of Jericho. Here, we've been afraid of the Israelites, and now they're marching around the walls of the city out there like they've lost their mind. The way God works the miracle here, the way God grants the victory, and this is the way God likes to work, I'm convinced, it, it, it helps us to know, and it, it must have alleviated issues of pride and egotism for the Israelites, that God and God alone is responsible for the victory. The people of Israel act in faith in doing what God had commanded them to do, and God blesses their faithfulness in that the walls of the city come tumbling down and they rush in and they plunder the city. They, they, they kill the inhabitants of the city. 
The victory is theirs through the provision of God's power. This is not an example of great military insight. This is not a First Samuel or uh, King's narrative where David makes a good military decision and puts them in a position where they're able to take advantage of a vulnerability of their enemy. This is a rather silly military plan. March around and blow horns. Not only are you out there wandering around the city walls, you're constantly giving away your position. There's, there's nothing sensible about what to read. Now, he tells them when you go into the city of Jericho, you're not to take anything. And the interesting thing about this is that later in, in, in forthcoming victories, they're allowed to take things. I'm, I'm convinced that there's a, a tithing principle being taught in the book of Joshua. There, there are ten great victories described in the book of Joshua. In the next nine, they're given permission to take freely from the cities. The silver, the gold, various goods, merchandise of value, they're, they're allowed to either take for themselves or to utilize in some way of, of serving God. But the first, the, the first tenth of, of what they gather to themselves in the book of Joshua that tenth is to be set apart to the Lord. It's not to be taken. They're, they're not to go and to grab for themselves material wealth in the process of this victory that is to be won over the people of, of Jericho. Now, if you know Joshua, you might know that not everyone observed that particular command. And, and, and so the next key passage in Joshua that I want us to look at together comes in just the next chapter. In Joshua chapter 7, the people of Israel, somewhat puffed up with pride, prepare to go take a city called Ai. That's actually not a good pronunciation, but we're going to roll with it because that's how we know it. And Ai is just this small military encampment outside the city of Jericho. In fact, it's, it's, it's kind of a place where you would store goods and resources that might be necessary if there were a need for battle. You don't want those things cluttering up the city of Jericho, so we'll build or establish this small outpost just a small distance from the city of Jericho so that if we have a need for these resources, we can very quickly retrieve them and then get back to the city of Jericho well fortified where we can fend off most any enemy invasion. So they take a small group of soldiers. They don't believe themselves to need many. In fact, they say, hey, send two or 3,000. We don't need the whole army to go out there and beat AI. We just beat the biggest city on this side of uh, the land of, of, of what would one day be Israel. We, we just saw the walls come tumbling down. God is with us. He is going before us. We, we just need a few people to go out there and handle this small encampment. And they go out and they get whipped. And uh, a few dozen of the Israelite men actually die in that battle, and they're sent with their tails tucked, running back to the full army of Israel, and they give the report to Joshua. Joshua kind of poor mouths the result, and he asks of God, why it is that this outcome has been experienced? And very quickly, God informs him that it's the direct result of someone's sin. There's sin in the camp, God says. And there's a man named Achan who has sinned grievously against God. Let's move a little quickly through here. Well, I, tonight, when you get to bedtime reading, read through Joshua 7. But in brief, what happens here is 
uh, Joshua and the elders of Israel go through each of the clans of Israel. They begin with the tribes and now the clans and now the families, and, and they begin to filter through the people of Israel, calling them to account. And it is discovered that a man named Achan takes some of the accursed things, some of the things he was prohibited from taking from the city of Jericho. Now, no one else knows about this. And he hides them in his tent. He buries them in his tent. And because of his unfaithfulness, the entire army of Israel is affected greatly in that they're whipped at the city of Ai. Now, it's not hard to draw good, healthy, wholesome biblical principles for the church from this experience. Your sin, even your secret sins, have a profound effect not only on you, but on your family and those that share fellowship with you. When Joshua, Joshua 7 is over, there's a whole pile of stones where not only is Achan stoned to death for his sin, but his family dies under the curse there with him. You are affected even by your secret sin. Your family is affected even by your secret sin. And yes, brothers and sisters, your church is affected by your secret sin. In, in, in today's version of American radical individualism, we tend to have this idea that what we do is none of anyone else's business. And we're pretty quick on the draw in responding to any accusation or inquiry in just that way. It is none of your business. But there is something about joining yourself to the fellowship of Jesus' church that gives every member of that church a direct interest in your business. Because my well-being is dependent on your well-being. Your well-being is dependent upon my well-being. Let me tell you something, church. The glory of God, the presence of God, is pleased to inhabit the holiness of his people. If you want to have revival as a church family, if you want a, an experience of closeness to God, pursue holiness in your lives individually and it has an infectious impact on the church you call your church home. It's just how it works. We are one in the body of Christ. Your cancer is my cancer. Your sin in so many ways is my sin to bear with. The consequences of your indiscretion are, are consequences that we will, as a collective unit, deal with. When we say we are one in the body of Christ, we aren't just whistling Dixie. We are quite literally one body in Jesus. And when one member of the body is not functioning as it should function, it has an incredible impact on the ability of the rest of the body to function. Just a little member. You may see yourself as terribly insignificant. My, my favorite football injury to hear talked about during this season of the year is something called turf toe. Are you familiar with turf toe? You would think that a 350-pound lineman would, would not be greatly affected by something called 
turf toe. But it's the same with the human body as it is with the body of Christ. Even what seems like an insignificant member, when broken, when malfunctioning, when damaged, when infected, it has an incredible bearing on the whole body. What you do, even when no one else is watching, has an incredible impact on the health, the effectiveness, the fruitfulness of this church. Here, here's another passage just quickly. Um, and and we, we, can, we can move through here now. As a, as a result of Achan's sin, the Israelites were defeated at Ai. Go back and revisit chapter 7. The, the last passage that I want to point you to is, is the last passage in the book of Joshua, chapter 24 and verses 14 through 28. Joshua ends like Deuteronomy ends. Moses died in Deuteronomy 34. In Joshua 24, Joshua dies. In many ways, Joshua is modeled after the book of Deuteronomy. Now, do you remember last week when we talked about Deuteronomy and the last section in Deuteronomy Moses gives them a prescription for renewing the covenant. You're going to forget it's a new generation, remember. You're going into the promised land. Some of you weren't there when we established covenant with God at Sinai. And you're going to be tempted to wonder. So this is what you do in order to reinstitute, to refresh, to revive, to recommit yourself to the covenant. Remember that? Now, at the end of Joshua's life, he calls the people of Israel to an actual covenant renewal. Let's all get together, he says. I'm, I'm about dead. And before I leave from here, let's all get together and commit again to the covenant that we've made with God. Verse 14, Joshua says, Therefore, fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and truth. Euphrates and in Egypt and worship Yahweh. But if it doesn't please you to worship Yahweh, choose for yourselves today the one you will worship, the gods of your fa- the gods your fathers worshipped beyond the Euphrates rivers, or river, or, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. As for me and my family, we will worship Yahweh. The people replied, We will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods. For the Lord our God brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, and he performed these great signs before our eyes. He protected us all along the way we went among the peoples whose lands we traveled through. The Lord drove out before us all the peoples, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will worship the Lord because he is our God. And Joshua said in verse 19, You'll not be able to worship Yahweh. Because he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not remove your transgressions and sins. If you abandon the Lord and worship foreign, foreign gods, he will turn against you, harm you, and completely destroy you after he's been good to you. But the people answered Joshua, No, we will worship the Lord. And Joshua told the people in verse 22, You're witnesses against yourselves, that you yourselves have chosen to worship Yahweh. And they said, We are witnesses. This is the famous passage um, that you have uh, uh, above your, the door of your home or on the mantle or on some kind of thing that grandma made for you at some point in time along the way. Choose you this day, Israel, or uh, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua states defiantly his commitment to serve God. In my house, Joshua says, for my family, We have pledged our allegiance 
to Yahweh and to Yahweh alone. We will only worship him now and forever. And then he says to the people, now you've got to make up your mind. You choose for yourselves who you're going to serve. Their initial response is yes. And he says, wait a minute, I'm not sure you understand what you're bargaining for. Because God is not out to have a part of your life or a part of your heart, Joshua says. He wants your full allegiance. And if you trifle with him, this is the Brother Wade paraphrase of what Joshua says. If you trifle with God, he will get you. That's what I call grandma theology. Granny didn't understand systematic theology, but she knew if you mess up, God will get you. And she would tell me often. And Joshua warns them, if you go playing around with God, it's going to end badly for you. The very God who has been good to you will curse you if you disobey his command. And the people say, no, we wouldn't have it any other way. We're going to worship the God of Israel. Now, what do you think about that? Isn't that the way you ought to respond? Isn't that what you should do? Now, you would think that we'd turn the pages of our Bible over to the next book of the Bible, and we'd read about an extended season of great faithfulness to God and fruitfulness in the land when God was moving powerfully in the midst of his people and great signs and wonders were perhaps worked as an indication of God's nearness to the people. But what happens in the next book of the Bible? Do you remember? The next book in the Bible is the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is a book that chronicles a 400-year period in the history of Israel that is among its most disgraceful seasons in its many thousands-year history. It is entirely possible for us to say all the right things, to insist on orthodoxy, to insist that we could never do the things that might otherwise be suggested. We would never do anything to disobey God. We'll, on the straight and narrow, we know what is right. We will persevere in our faithfulness to God and turn right around and do the very things that violate our very confession. Here's a good life truth. If you really want to know what a person believes, don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. You may not always do the things you say you believe, but you will always irreversibly do the things you really believe in your heart of hearts. There are a lot of people, especially in our little part of the world, that say all the right things. We've trained them to say all the right things, but are functioning atheist in their lives. I, I, I want, I, we have to reclaim the ability to call a spade a spade as the church of Jesus Christ. It used to be, 30 years ago, the favorite verse in, in America was, God so loved the world he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The more recent polls suggest that America's favorite verse now is judge not lest you be judged. We're all afraid of violating that axiom of our culture. First of all, I'm not sure that we understand well what Jesus says in Matthew 7.1 because in Matthew 7.6 he says, Don't cast your pearls before the swine or give what's holy to the dogs, which implies heavily the need to make judgment. He means stop looking around in the world out there and castigating people about their sin. Judgment begins at the house of God. That's what Jesus means in Matthew 7. The same Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, said you'll know a tree by its fruit. 
Good trees bear good fruit, and bad trees bear bad fruit. We've got to come to a place where we can reclaim the ability to identify some fruit. We seem all too willing to identify the fruit of the world out there, and there, there is an, an ever-growing and, and deeply ensconced unwillingness to identify fruit within the camp. Here we have a, a, a prime example of a group of people who say the right things with their mouth when their heart is far from God. Joshua says, choose you this day whom you will serve. And our response to that question that hangs over every soul gathered here this evening will be answered not only in word, but in deed. What we do matters. It will either validate or invalidate what we say with our mouth. The old folk says it's not just about talking the talk, it's about walking the walk. That's a biblical concept. Woe unto us when our actions deceive our confessions.